In New York, just about everyone comes from somewhere else. Uptown, downtown, another borough, from across the river, across the country, or around the world. Be it you or your ancestors, from generation to generation, it's the New York story. But among the millions of these New York stories, Marcus Samuelson's story stands out. Welcome to Before the Cheering Started, a podcast all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment. I'm Bud Mishkin. Marcus Samuelson's story has been well documented, but there are always lessons to be learned from it. Born in Ethiopia, a mother who died of tuberculosis, he and his sister adopted by a Swedish couple and raised in the Swedish port city of Gothenburg. A love of cooking developed thanks in large part to his grandmother, and he started taking it seriously, working professionally in Sweden and abroad before taking the plunge and moving to New York. It's an amazing journey, and it still plays a major role in his work. So we begin the conversation talking about his latest New York restaurant, Hav and Mar, overflowing with his African and Swedish influences, right down to the name. Well, but it's, it, it's everything, you know, I, I don't, do a lot of restaurants in New York. I, I love New York City, and I want to be really, really thoughtful when I put something together for New York. I think about it as almost like an artist that, uh, almost like a Sade in a way, like you know, it's an artist that you put up your work and that's the work, and then people, the public can engage with it, staff can work there. It creates these homes and, and places for us and um, that's really what Hob was. It came out of the pandemic. It came out of the cooking and my thoughts being with my family out of the pandemic and really putting up what matters. If a rest, you know, it was really, the birth was really during those scary days in early 2000, spring 2020, when we didn't even know if hospitality would ever matter again, would it ever come back. And, uh, Somewhere that late summer, you know, I realized I cooked differently for my family. Less animal protein, smaller portions, more grain, more vegetables. And um, I couldn't see my Swedish family. I couldn't see my Ethiopian family. And then, you know, I started to realize how much I missed not the access of travel. And that's really the birthplace of Havmar. So, uh, so I looked at pictures and images where my son and I, my wife and I, spent town in the Swedish West Coast, where the nature of that is very brisk and 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 it's granite and it's green water. It's not ocean blue; it's green. And uh, we looked at my son picked up, you know, clams and mussels. So this hob has so much of that tonality, and then it was the tonality of Ethiopia, honey red clay, Berbere, feet, sweat, uh, my hut. So it's really about putting all of that together. And even in the name that where Hav means ocean in Swedish and Mar means honey in Amharic. You spent much of the pandemic turning one of your best known restaurants, uh, Red Rooster, into a community kitchen. How did that idea come to you? Well, but just like you you're part of a community, several communities. Uh, so are we in the hospitality, right? So, you know, I'm fortunate to live in Harlem. We're a very close-knit community here. And 
realizing a restaurant cannot be a restaurant, but it can still have a force and still be have impact in its community. You know, one of the first people I called was my friend Jose Andres that headed up World Central Kitchen. And he said, you know what? We know how to serve in a in a safe way. We have masks, we have gloves, we have all of those things that, you know, was so scarce and people didn't have. And I said, we, well, we can cook. And that's when he said, like, listen, I'm going to have my guys up there. Do you think people will come? And I said, I guarantee your people will come. And the first day we started to serve very simple food. Uh, we handed out 200 portions. And then word got out. Then the next day was three, 400. And uh, towards the end, we served about twelve to 1,400 portions a day. So uh, it was not the, how I thought about Red Rooster when we started it. But I realized it's the most important time of Red Rooster's history. When you first came to New York as a young man, that notion of it being about more than food and also it being about uh, culture and, and where you come from, uh, was that uh, on your mind when you were a young man coming to New York trying to make it in the food and restaurant world? Or at that point, is it just about, hey, I'm coming to this city I have some skills. I need to focus on this. And then that that notion kind of evolved. You know, I think all of it, a little bit of both, right? But I would say I grew up as an adult in New York City. I became, you know, I was, you know, I grew up in Sweden, but my adult life had, had really been lived in New York City. And uh, one of the blessings of being Black is that you're shut out from so many different spaces and places. And that really gives you time to think. And really, if this is a place that it is for me, how do I open this door and how do I change the narrative? How do I change the process when I do get a chance? Because, yes, I was that young guy that was dreamish and wanted to come to New York. And I knew, bud, that I could add value because I worked in France at the highest level. I worked in Japan. I worked in Switzerland at the highest level. So I knew if I'm in a kitchen, I will add value. I just need to get a chance. And I got a chance. But in terms of connecting it with people of color, connecting it with who I am, connecting it with need and charity work, that was something that I had to learn and see and become, right? Like I, it was at 23, 24, I was too young to kind of put those pieces together. I was about 29 when... Uh, late 20s or 30s when World Trade Center happened and September 11 happened and being down there working as a junior just like handing out food and being part of it I saw what the big chefs and, and organizers were Danny Meyer, Drew Nearport, Charlie Palmer, Bobby Flay, Michael Lamonico these guys that had been in New York for a minute they realized right away what to do we were all there to this. But being around at that time, you realize, wow, this is really about a community. This is about much, much more than you serving great food. Hmm. Your story, uh, born in, uh, in Ethiopia, mom dies, you're in an orphanage, you're adopted by a Swedish couple. It's been well documented and you've discussed it and, uh, and um, analyzed it uh, publicly for a long time. Is there a particular point in your professional life where you start to get comfortable with doing that uh, in terms of talking about 
or I'm going to talk about my history and what it means to me and how it affects my work today. I, I think doing the, my memoir, Yes, Chef, once you commit, you got to go all in. And that's, I wasn't all in in the beginning. I didn't know how mentally, what a toll it would take, but also I needed to dig deep. And that's why it took five years to make. And you realize you really got to share so much of your character and personality in order for the book to really connect. And once the book was out, every day from that day, people come up to me in different areas. Like, we're thinking about adopting. We read your story. Oh, my nephew is a young chef of color. He read your book. It's not so much about we ate at Aquavit or we love Red Rooster. It becomes about life. And once you start sharing your narrative with people, it connects with an audience and people that are not in the food world necessarily. And that's been really powerful. And it's been something that just sharing my story has helped me understand also my journey even better, right? Like there will always be a mystery on why we got adopted. You can ask, I can ask myself 500 times, how come my father didn't come and pick us up? But then gone back to Ethiopia, to that countryside, I also realized that this is a place where people live for a dollar a day or maybe $2 a day, you know? So there was never any opportunity to go back into the city and where would he go? There was nobody wrote him a note that, where, you know, you can't just go into a three, four million population city and, and start looking for two kids. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, and my father answered it the best. He said, didn't it all work out? I said, yes. Okay, what more do you want? You know? When you started to go back to Africa as a successful restaurateur and chef here in New York and beyond, um, what is that feeling? When you go back, is there a notion of there but for fortune that could have been me? Constantly. You, uh, I, I go back very often to work, whether I work in a charity or whether I volunteer in different types of food environment. I love go back working because you're now with people in a way that when you're a tourist, it's impossible, right? And the tourist, you just you see the country from that view when you work you see you know you have staff mail you you chop you you're behind the scene and everyone i love the anonymity about being in ethiopia because i look like traditional ethiopian guy in my you know whatever age stage i'm, I'm in at that point but then it changes right whether because i don't speak the language as well as i should uh culturally i'm a little bit off Maybe they see that my shoes are, you know, like whatever. They, I, I get figured out. And being an immigrant, being adopted, these are constantly things that go through your head. Like, where is home? Where do you belong? And one thing that I love about New York City is that no one cares. You can be a New Yorker, do your job, be a good, good, be good to your neighbors, be given when you can, and New York will invite you in, regardless of so many different. Uh, ethnicities or religions and everything. And that's one of the reasons why I love being in New York because as an adopted black immigrant, I feel the most at home here because I see other people also searching for their identity here yeah. and are good with that. You know, It's what's built the city mm -hmm. for, for more than a hundred years. Yeah. yeah. Um, you've talked about how it was your grandmother's cooking back in Sweden that kind of first lit the spark. Uh, what's the smell 
if you can describe it, that you first associate with, oh yeah, that that's the smell, that's what's being made. And that brings me right back home to that early love of cooking. Well, I would say that it's, it's, it's smoked mackerel. You know, we grew up on the water, taking care of fish, smoking fish was key because you can preserve it. It's knowing that running up the 13 stairs of my grandmother's house and knowing that there's a chicken broth in the back, bread just came out of the oven, uh, fish is being dried somewhere, uh, there's mushrooms in the corner that needs to be cleaned, there are apple jam or some type of berry or fruit jam being cooked somewhere, and where do you want to jump in? Like, I've never been to her house, and and there was... I don't remember watching TV at our house, right? Like it was, you were always active around food, always. So there was so much love. The way she expressed love was through her cooking. Mm-hmm. There was obviously decades between us and ages, but a love for cooking. We, you know, we were the same age, basically. You know, she shared me, she showed me, she shared a secret. She showed me how to do it. She showed me how to taste food by pouring it into your hand and, now I realize, you know, a six-year-old kid, you burnt your hands. But, like, she really, like, taught me all these tricks that she had, you know. Is there a first dish or a first time or a first period yeah. of your life growing up that you start to think, hey, I, I actually can do this? Well, as she got older, some of these big dinners became more and more of my responsibility. Huh. And I just remember one year cooking turkey, and uh, I knew how to make the sauce. I knew how to, I knew it needed to be in for a good three hours in the oven. My sisters are older than me. They were there, but they were not just interested in it. They helped me out, but I may, I knew how to make the mash. And my grandmother always had uh, apples in her mashed potatoes. Uh, she had a specific pickle juice in her gravy. And my sister didn't know that. And I knew, I was like, nope. Yeah, this, this is the pickle juice that she's using with a little bit of mustard seeds in them. And it was just like I knew how to navigate. And then my sisters came in the end to kind of like help me get the Brussels and everything else at the table at the same time. But I was 11 or 12 years old and I'm like, I got it. I knew how to do this. <laughs> That's great. I remember you told me once a story that I always, it always makes me chuckle that you start working in, in restaurants or maybe the Culinary Institute in Sweden and ar- around chefs who had been around the world and they talked smack. And I yeah. said, Swedish smack? Is there such a yeah. thing? So you want yeah. to explain that yeah. one to me once again? It was a different world once Jan's did a staff meal. Those guys were older. And when I say older, maybe they were like 31. You know right. what I mean? <laughs> oh, 32. they were old. <laughs> yeah, they were old. But one guy talked about coming back from France. And I've been to France with my parents, but he was there to work. One guy worked on a ship. He's worked in South America. I'm like, South America? How do you even work in South? Like, it was so foreign to me. A couple of guys had been to the States to work. Boston, New York. And they were talking about things that, you know, I connected to music. Maybe like Prince lived in New York in my mind, right? Right. (laughs) Whether he lived in Minneapolis or New York, but in my mind. Close enough. Yeah. So to, to be in this room with these guys, they were well-traveled, not on vacation travel, the way I've traveled, actually through working. And the people that I met, and the stories they came back with, I was like, I got to go. I can't afford 
to be here for another three months. I got to go. I got to go out. Whatever the world is, I got to go there. And go there, meaning go right to New York or were there travels before there? Oh, there was many travels before there. You know, Gothenburg is such a, uh, I love it. It's home, right, in a way, but it's a blue-collar city. That's where the home of Volvo, home of Hasselblad cameras. Staub is just made an hour north. So it's very blue-collar, especially at that time, it was going through a transition of not being a port town. It is a port town, but it was deeply, heavily a port town in the 50s and 60s and transforming itself to the early stages of what technology would look like. So it was unemployment and stuff like that. So it wasn't a place where you could see yourself around fine dining. So for me, I wanted to get to France. And my dad was always, you're not ready for France. You got to learn French and you want to work in the highest level restaurant. So we got to get you to the D-League before you get to NBA. Mm-hmm. So for us, that was going to Switzerland, going to Austria, because he knew it wasn't just about cooking. It was about, can you live by yourself? Can you wash your own clothes? Can you like show up on time? Can you handle being in a foreign environment? It was all these things that I was not about to learn at a three-star Michelin restaurant working in France. He's like, no, you're going over here, and then you get over to this place. And he was right, and it took me about six years. I don't want to presume what the life was like uh, for you growing up in Sweden, coming from Ethiopia, being adopted by your parents. Uh, how do you look at that youth now? Adoption is very complicated. Growing up is complicated. Right. And it's complicated for all of us. For all of us, exactly. Yeah. I had a beautiful childhood in terms of family. I was loved. I had two great parents that was in front of me next to me and behind me. I had an extended family with my cousins and I had two great older sisters. The Samuelson tribe, we were, we were there's a lot of people and I always felt loved. But it was also obviously very complicated in, in terms of finding identity and figuring out stuff, uh, becoming a teenager, all of that stuff. But I realized also how lucky I was, but like I could go to my sisters, I could go to my parents, I could go to my friends to navigate those tough times. You told me once that when you sat at the table, you have an aunt who was Jewish, cousins who were yeah. Korean, parents who were white. My other sister was of mixed race. You, you were getting ready for New York even before you knew it. Yeah, in terms no, of having our, the whole world right there. Our holiday dinners was definitely the Samson tribe. We had many sections of the world. And my father worked abroad a lot. So he brought our home either gifts or sometimes colleagues came back and ate with us. So English was spoken in our household a lot. Our cousins were Canadian, French Canadians. So they brought that international and our Korean cousins and my Jewish auntie. So it was a big, big family table where international was not strange. Mm-hmm. Foreign was not far away from us. So when you finally get to New York, first of all, how old are you? And second of all, are you arriving with confidence or are there moments of, is this going to work out? I arrived with my capability and my confidence in my cooking. I was 23 years old. I was excited about coming to New York. But then life happens, right? Even if it's just a couple of weeks of working here, my executive chef passes away. He dies. And I wasn't ready at that time to become a chef. And it's also like the sadness of having your mentor die. Then the other side of you got to step in now 
and work and take on responsibilities that are way beyond your years. You know, are you ready for that? And it's funny in life, you can write whatever plan path you want. Once life get a hold of you, it's going to go in a different direction. It doesn't have to be bad. It's just going to throw you a curveball. And that was my curveball. Hmm. I'm always curious about people who are in positions that 99.99999% of the rest of us are, will never be in. And even for people in the food world. So uh, can you tell me about what the experience is like being the guest chef for the Obama administration's first state dinner? Uh, oh my God. Can, I, can I imagine that there's probably a little more pressure involved with that than uh, making a peanut butter sandwich for your kid for lunch, maybe? It was exciting. The whole process was exciting. We, I got asked about three, four months before, and then you were asked to throw in a suggestion. And it was right around the time when Michelle Obama had announced her garden, her beautiful vegetable garden. And I studied, I read that Prime Minister Singh was vegetarian. So in my own head, I started thinking about it as a guest of honor in a dinner, t- dinner party, rather than thinking about it as the White House and the steak dinner. And my suggestion was length, more vegetarian, and also highlight Indian ingredients and American ingredients. Up to that point, the state dinners were French. And I was like, that, this is America. Like, why shouldn't we cook American food with a nod to the Indian, to the guest of honor? So they liked that suggestion, but still couldn't, there was no guarantees because they have asked about 30 different chefs, then 10 different chefs, and then narrowed down to three. And eventually, uh, my team and I got the opportunity. And it was so exciting. It was the day of being there. The guest list grew. We had to move it to the garden. We had to build a kitchen in the garden. It was so much fun. But I was, I was nervous. You get, you had to serve four courses in forty-four minutes, and then <laughs> it was on with entertainment. So yeah. At the risk of asking an obvious question, how important was it to you at that time? It's two thousand nine, two thousand eight. From the financial crisis, was not an easy time for anyone let alone the restaurant business, was was the timing of it important for you personally and professionally? You can't plan these things, right? This is You can't apply for it. But, you know, it was an amazing timing because I was I just left Aquavit. I decided to really... I've been thinking about building Red Rooster for, at that point, four or five years. Mm-hmm. But I took the decision when I came back from the state dinner. I'm like, we're going doing this and a couple of things that happened i've actually just finished my season on top chef masters and i knew that would come out in 2010 and i happened to win top chef masters and i just felt like with all the anticipation of leaving aquavit now cooked the state dinner and winning top chef master this will give me the year i needed to just focus on building both construction, but also fundamentally building Red Rooster. So 2010-9, we decided in the fall, and 2010 in December, Red Rooster opens. Sounds like a a story of momentum building towards something. Yeah. Yeah. I understand that early on, uh, you really looked to American Black culture in terms of inundating yourself in the works of uh, James Baldwin, Malcolm X, Miles Davis. Um, what led to that? What precipitated that? Why did you feel 
What, what was the need to do that? Well, but I think that, first of all, African-American culture, pop culture is so much bigger around the world than even Americans understand, right? If you are other, anywhere in the world, you're looking at Black American pop culture for a reference point of culture, right? Hip-hop is today that it is pop culture all over the world, right? right. But when I was growing up, you know, you looked, you looked at excellence and, and in the literature world, you looked at, you know, maybe Baldwin, Langston, Maya, and we were told these things a lot at home. We were, this was at our dinner table. Musically, we always had Stevie, my dad and Miles. We played Michael and Prince uh, and a lot of hip hop. So American culture for me was very much around African-American culture. And when, as I saw in the books, you know, a lot of it happened in Harlem. So I felt like it would be a dream one day to live in Harlem and work in Harlem and in, Right after 9-11, I decided to move to Harlem. And it was the best day. I think it saved me in many ways. I was completely lost after 9-11. I was cooking in the towers a week before. Wow. I knew a lot of people that passed away. And uh, I thought this was it. I was like, you know, if I leave New York now, I didn't like to leave on such a down. I felt like giving up. And I decided rather than move, I decided to give New York one more go. And then, and uh, that's what I did. I thought like I sold my apartment, moved, moved uptown. And it was the best decision for me. And I needed that injection of new life. And it really helped me, really guided me. You were in the towers a week before. With Michael Monaco, we cooked, cooked breakfast for CCAP, Careers for Culinary Arts, which has been a charity I worked on for, for many, many years and cooked for Swedish television. And Michael was kind enough to give us 106th floor to work and have these amazing views and I it uh, it just constantly it's something that never goes away in your book yes chef you write your time your ego your relationships your social life they all sacrificed they are all sacrificed it's a daily dose of humility can you explain that a little bit to me yeah I mean my way of chefing is I'm all in and it takes, it consumes all I have. And I plan, I can't really plan anything else but that. I know I will be at the restaurant. I'm in town, I'm at the restaurant. And um, so everything is around that, right? My family, my, my social life, everything. People see me through the restaurant. They come to the restaurant. Uh, the purveyors, like everything is around that. And uh, it's not, something I complain about. This is my life. This is what I choose to and feel privileged to share with New Yorkers over 25 years. It's not linear. It's not easy, but it's what I enjoy to do. Going back to those really early years in Sweden, uh, one last time, uh, can you tell me about the importance of ginger snaps on yeah. St. Saint, Saint Lucia Day as someone uh, who has yeah. never had, as someone who's never had the pleasure? Oh, no, absolutely. It, it first starts with the smell, the cardamom, the ginger, the cumin. I mean, the great spices, the brown sugar, first making them. You start late November, and you're getting ready for the holiday season. And uh, my grandmother's ginger snapped. You know, you realize right away what they're making the factory versus what you make at home. The ones you make at home might not have that perfect shape, but they taste better. And uh, 
ginger snap was, I mean, I couldn't wait for those takes early November. When are we going to start? Because it was like a little factory for us. That was our holiday gift for everybody. So we made tons of ginger snap and, uh, you know, gave me a lot of cookie dough tea. And again, those years growing up in Sweden and and then starting to travel and work and then eventually coming to New York, those early years in New York, uh, can you uh, kind of describe how that tangibly affects the work that you continue to do today? What do those early years mean to you now? I would say my early years in New York, I love them. I choose to... I didn't have a dime, but I didn't need a lot. I was very, very happy. I was working in the city that I love, working with something that I love to work with. And it was kind of simple. We were like three roommates and luxury was when one roommate was away because then you got another roommate, you know. (laughs) And, you know, we worked and went out. And, you know, if I had a chance on Saturday morning, maybe I roller skated, rollerbladed in Central Park. You know, it was very simple and enjoyable and just was a way for me to learn about Chinatown, learn about Brooklyn, going to uh, Queens and seeing how diverse it was, you know, biking up to the Bronx and obviously knowing that that was the center of the birthplace of hip hop and graffiti. But it took me three, four or five years in New York just to understand, start to understand the city. And I needed that, you know, and for me, it's, it's such an incredible place. I was sent to so many incredible people. Yeah, it's it's messed up. But I always said, F you from somebody on the train, a New Yorker on the train, is sometimes much better than good morning from anyone else because I can trust the F you on the train. I know where it's coming from. I know the frustration. So next time I hear that on the subway, I will keep that in mind. Yeah, we're in this <laughs> shit together. <laughs> Marcus, always a pleasure to talk to you. Always. Thank you so much for having me. And congratulations for everything you've done. And thank you for keeping New Yorkers connected and keep talking to, um, you know, your New Yorkers that love the city and and are committed to the city and want to improve it. Amen. Amen. All the best, Marcus. All right. Thank you. Bye. Marcus Samuelson. He's just announced the creation of a new restaurant in Atlanta, his first in that city. And the Perlman Performing Arts Center in New York, part of the rebuilding of the World Trade Center site and the revitalization of Lower Manhattan, has selected Marcus Samuelson to open what is being called an original concept flagship restaurant. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. Thank you, as always, to editor Lou Pellegrino. I'm excited about the upcoming episodes, including interviews with chef and writer Gabrielle Hamilton, writer Jane Green, music impresario Michael Dorff, baseball broadcaster Susan Waldman, personal finance advocate Gene Chatsky, and the wonderful actor and storyteller par excellence Richard Kind. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on the journey.